The following presentation is brought to you by the Realm Network. Buzz Burbank, news and comment. Our world in split screen. Welcome to my weekly report for Thursday, March 5th, 2020. Thank you for listening to this independent news, which appreciates your support through the donate button at buzzburbank.com. Donald Trump didn't sleep at all during his 18-hour flight back from India on Wednesday of last week. He spent the entire time watching cable news and talking with staffers who were also still awake or who'd been awakened by some turbulence. Those staffers say Trump became increasingly irritated as he watched the stock markets in free fall and angry that somebody in his administration, Nancy Massonier of the CDC, told the public that the spread of the new coronavirus in this country is a when, not an if, and that it might be bad. Trump was furious when he landed at Joint Base Andrews, according to the Washington Post. Trump was reportedly angry about what he considered an alarmist announcement from the Centers for Disease Control and about the media reports about his administration's lack of preparedness. He wanted to go on TV and talk about it, even though he hadn't slept for a day and a half, maybe two and a half days, according to White House Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney. Well, I don't think it's inevitable, Trump said to the cameras to refute the CDC warning. And then the rambling. Quote, it probably will, it possibly will, it could be at a very small level, or it could be at a larger level. When you have 15 people, said Trump, and the 15, within a couple of days, is going to be down close to zero, that's a pretty good job we've done. But one after another, the health experts, the scientists who remain in our government during this administration said the opposite, that the number would not, not, not go down to zero, that it would instead go up and up. Whatever happens, said the sleep-deprived president, we're totally prepared. They were totally not prepared. As a senior administration official told The Post, it's complete chaos. Everyone's just trying to get a handle on what the F is going on. And we still are. Trump was still on Air Force One when Mitt Romney spoke. Romney and other lawmakers were in a White House briefing at the time about the virus and about how the White House would offer a $2.5 billion response, partly with new spending and partly by robbing other health programs. Most lawmakers, including Republican Richard Shelby of Alabama, called that a lowball figure. Nearly all agreed that more than $2.5 billion was needed. Representatives were hearing concern from the folks back home about the lack of testing kits and the lack of answers. Mitt Romney, the Republican who didn't vote to acquit Trump on impeachment charges, again spoke credibly. I'm very disappointed, he said, in the preparation that's been done over the last few years, anticipating the potential of an outbreak of substance. We've had SARS, we've had MERS, Ebola, said Romney. We should have stockpiled that kind of protective gear our medical professionals and citizens will need, and we haven't. Congress has agreed to spend more on the coronavirus threat and to do it with new money, $8.3 billion, without cutting money from other health programs. On Thursday, we learned from a Health and Human Services Department whistleblower that untrained HHS personnel from a Family Services Department had been put in charge of greeting the Americans just back from the coronavirus outbreak in Japan, and they were sent without the proper protective gear, and then they were allowed to move about freely through their communities. One even got on a plane, according to the whistleblower complaint, which was filed through channels. Congress is investigating reports the whistleblower has since faced retaliation from her superiors for filing that complaint. 
She says she was reassigned after filing the complaint, moved to a job for which she has no experience or expertise. She says she was told that if she did not accept the transfer, she would be fired through, quote, adverse personnel action, an apparent violation of the Whistleblower Protection Act. The man in charge at HHS is Alex Azar, a former lobbyist for the pharmaceutical industry. Some have argued he still is. Also on Thursday, the stock market lost another 4.5% on top of the 4% it had lost the day before. By Thursday evening of last week, Trump was saying it's going to disappear. One day, like a miracle, it will disappear. And from our shores, we, you know it could get worse before it gets better. It could maybe go away. We'll see what happens. Nobody really knows. End quote. On Friday, we learned that two new COVID-19 patients were evidence of community spread, the phrase that describes patients who have not traveled abroad nor had contact with those who have. And the stock market fell another 350 points, moving the markets into correction territory with the biggest weekly drop since the Wall Street crash of 2008. It could have been worse. The day had begun with another 1,000-point drop. There was talk inside the White House about ways to respond to the economic effects of COVID-19. The options reportedly included a targeted tax cut package, leaning harder on the Fed to cut interest rates. Uh, The vice president was part of those talks. But that evening, Mike Pence was off to Florida for a fundraiser, two days after being put in charge of the coronavirus response, even though the worst HIV outbreak in Indiana history occurred while Pence was governor there. And even though critics blame his slow response and his opposition to a needle exchange program for that record outbreak in Indiana. He's got a certain talent for this, said Trump, when he put Pence in charge of the COVID-19 response. By Friday night, Trump was back in front of a crowd of red hats, also in Florida, railing against Democrats. And this is their new hoax, he said to a crowd of people who were within coughing distance of each other. Even as Trump spoke that night, new cases were revealed in California and Oregon. By Saturday, the World Health Organization elevated its risk level to very high to describe the risk and the impact of the spread of COVID-19 in over a dozen countries. And the Trump administration announced new travel restrictions affecting South Korea and Italy, and especially Iran, where a close advisor to the supreme leader there has died from COVID-19. The U.S. recorded its first death from the disease, a man in his 50s who had other health problems, or as Trump had described him, a wonderful woman. That same day, Mick Mulvaney was telling a convention of conservatives, we know how to handle this, accusing the media of using the virus to, quote, bring down the president. Trump would tweet later again about fake news. To the Sunday morning news talk shows, the White House sent Mike Pence and HHS Secretary Alex Azar to speak and kept those truth-telling scientists away from the cameras. Government experts like Dr. Anthony Fauci, who tend to blurt out the truth, were kept off the air to the concern of even many Republicans who trust Fauci implicitly. Fauci managed to get on the air anyway via the evening news on NBC, warning of an outbreak and a coming pandemic, precisely the kind of scary talk the White House is working so hard to avoid. The White House calls such talk alarmist. But Trump knows even Republicans won't let him fire Dr. Anthony Fauci. On Fox News, Donald Trump Jr. said Democrats, quote, seemingly hope that it comes here and kills millions of people so they can end Donald Trump's streak of winning... 
By Sunday, the U.S. had recorded its second death, a male nursing home patient in the Seattle suburbs, the second coronavirus death in Washington state. Four new cases were discovered there, bringing the state's total to 13. The governor declared a statewide public health emergency. The virus had apparently been kicking around the state of Washington, infecting scores of people for nearly seven weeks now, according to health officials there. Now it's an outbreak. Washington Governor Jay Ensley said Monday, folks should begin to think about avoiding large events and assemblies. Inslee said the state was not asking that events be canceled, just that, quote, people should be prepared for that possibility. A public health emergency has now also been declared at Travis Air Base in Northern California, which received the Americans released from quarantine on the Diamond Princess cruise ship. Rhode Island and New York State announced they now have cases. By Sunday night, Florida had recorded its first two cases of coronavirus, now up to three in the Tampa Bay region. Both cases within an hour's drive from where Trump had called it a hoax two nights before. There is no connection to Trump's rally, of course. It's the irony that he was calling it a hoax that close to active infections that his chief of staff would call it political on the same day the first American died after testing positive for the new coronavirus. On Monday, officials in Washington state announced four more coronavirus deaths, bringing the state's total to six. The widely respected Dr. Anthony Fauci, the nation's top infectious disease expert, said the virus in the U.S. had, quote, reached outbreak proportions and likely pandemic proportions. Also on Monday, Trump told reporters it would be, quote, very safe to attend large public events like the rally he would have that night in North Carolina. Well, said Trump, these things were set up a long time ago, and others are, I mean, you could ask that to the Democrats because they're having a lot of rallies. That's what they're doing. The NCAA has a contingency plan now for March Madness, including playing the games in empty arenas if they must. The new James Bond movie is being held back from release for another 007 weeks, as MGM and Universal hope the coronavirus scare will pass by then. No sense releasing to empty theaters. United Airlines is cutting back on its number of daily flights. In Chicago, a housewares trade show has been canceled on fears that a gathering of 60,000 people could help spread the virus. The International Monetary Fund and World Bank say they will use video for their spring meeting this year instead of gathering together in Washington. Travel is being canceled by companies and by families. Twitter told its people to work from home. Some schools are preparing for that, and some schools have already closed. Facebook and Google have canceled upcoming conferences. Some churches have started holding virtual video services. Many other events, including the South by Southwest Festival, are still on. And the Trump rallies, for now, are still on. As this week began, the U.S. had still tested only about 500 people for the virus, while other countries had tested hundreds of thousands. That, says a New York hospital official, is a national scandal. By Monday night, the administration had announced it would distribute one million working test kits around the country by the end of the week after having rolled out a defective test kit early last week. Tuesday, Vice President Mike Pence announced a change in policy that, while only some patients had been allowed to be tested for coronavirus, the test would now be open to anyone with symptoms whose doctor recommends one once the test kits arrive, and assuming the test labs are not overwhelmed with cases. Suppliers are saying there's no way they or the government can meet that million-kit goal. Once the tests are delivered, health officials hope to test 10,000 people a day. 
more testing in the U.S. will, of course, mean more confirmed cases of the virus in the U.S. The week began with the Surgeon General urging Americans to stop buying face masks unless they're already sick or unless they are healthcare workers. Stores reported customers stocking up on water and soup, toilet paper, and whatever gloves and sanitizers and disinfectants were left on the shelves. The shelves were empty at a supermarket in Silicon Valley. A professor of supply chain management at Northeastern University said, I believe we're going to have a massive shortage of goods. He included in that everything from pharmaceuticals to electronics. If the store is empty of products, then people don't go to the store anymore, says a business professor at George Washington University, adding, that's what we're risking here. As the week began, schools were beginning to close in Rhode Island and in the Pacific Northwest, and on Monday, the stock market regained 4.5% of the 14% losses of last week. Although the markets bounced back some on Monday, there were rough economic days ahead and investors knew it. They were buoyed by a promise from the central banks to offset the economic effects of the coronavirus, but they also knew about the events yet to come. Global supply chains were already starting to break down with China at the heart of that breakdown as well as the heart of the pandemic. Here in the States, consumer demand was evaporating as Americans prepared to stay home before it might become necessary to do so. And consumer demand is nearly seven-tenths of our economy. Corporations of every sort are predicting lower earnings for 2020. And investors saw what was happening over in the bond markets. There, interest rates were falling around the world to try to head off an economic crisis. Here in the U.S., the Fed had already lowered interest rates repeatedly to record lows, and they couldn't go much lower. There's not a lot of wiggle room here. There aren't many economic band-aids left in the box to offer stimulus to the economy if it's needed. And it may very well be needed. Still, the Federal Reserve bowed to the pressure on Tuesday, pressure from Wall Street and from the president, to lower interest rates. With the stock market tumbling again Tuesday morning, the Fed slashed interest rates by one-half of 1%, the biggest interest rate cut since the recession hit in 2008. Australia cut its rates as well. The stock markets immediately turned around again, but only for a New York minute. The day ended with another nosedive of 786 points. Interest rates are now in the 1% to 1.5% range, and slashing them hadn't stopped the stock market slide. Until the next day, when the volatile stock market rose again on the strength of the Joe Biden string of primary victories, which we will get to shortly. Meanwhile, the markets were a roller coaster, but Trump got the interest rate cut he'd demanded. Interest rates are usually only this low during a recession. And economists fear that another recession is what we're about to get. Low-income Americans would be hardest hit by a U.S. epidemic. Many don't have health insurance or paid sick days. Many don't have the cash to cover their hospital bills, even with health insurance, never mind without. And that keeps people from going to hospitals. And many don't have the option to work from home. During the swine flu outbreak in 2009, at least 3 in 10 workers who were sick with it took no time off work. For people in low-paying jobs, staying home is not an option. Most of those with no sick leave are making 10 bucks an hour on average. Even companies with paid sick leave offer 8 days a year at best, and the recommended self-quarantine for COVID-19 is 2 weeks. 
And the more people who are out of their homes, the harder it will be to contain the virus. As a cashier told The Guardian, I can't leave the floor to wash my hands after each customer whose money and food I touched. We can't wear masks and gloves. Over 96,000 COVID-19 cases have now appeared in 86 countries around the world, resulting in about 3,300 deaths. Here in the U.S., 140 active cases now, with 11 deaths, including one in California, the first outside Washington state. More than once over the past week, Trump has compared the coronavirus to the flu. Wall Street's Mick Mulvaney, Trump's acting chief of staff, put on his medical hat to say, quote, the flu kills people. This is not a death sentence. The flu and coronavirus illnesses do share a couple of symptoms, coughing and fever. We can become infected well before we fall ill from either one. And both can escalate into pneumonia and even death. But the similarities end there. Instead of the body aches we get with influenza, this new virus includes difficulty in breathing, which you don't normally get with the flu. These are two different viruses. They have different effects. There are vaccines and prescription meds for the flu. COVID-19 patients have bed rest, over-the-counter fever reducers, and fluids. Maybe oxygen or a ventilator if it gets bad. And ventilators are reportedly in short supply. Based on the early numbers, COVID-19 appears to be exponentially more deadly than influenza's A and B combined. For the tens of thousands of American lives it takes every year, even with nearly half of us avoiding the shots, the flu's fatality rate is just 0.1%. This week, the World Health Organization raised the official fatality rate of COVID-19 to 3.4% making the virus appear far more deadly than the 2.3% we'd heard at first. In his continuing efforts to play down the threat, Trump got on the phone with Fox News to tell viewers the WHO's numbers are probably false. The last time a flu virus got to even a 2% fatality rate, it killed tens of millions of people in 1918. Besides the fever and the coughing, if there's a similarity between the flu and this coronavirus, it is that COVID-19 is as deadly as the 1918 flu pandemic. But this new virus is much more contagious than the flu viruses we've encountered. A person with the flu, on average, infects 1.3 other people. A person infected with this coronavirus appears to infect 2.2 other people. Being ill from COVID-19 does not feel as devastating as the flu unless you have difficulty breathing. And elderly patients and those with existing heart and lung conditions are especially at risk. We know this virus can survive on a surface or doorknob, for example, for much longer than the flu virus can, up to nine days. The same is true for railings and countertops. We don't yet know if, like the flu, COVID-19 goes away by summer or if it will continue through the summer or if it will subside and then return in the fall. We don't yet know if it's something for which we can build up our immunity. We don't yet know if it can, like some infections, recede and then reemerge. We don't yet know if any of these things will happen because this is a new coronavirus altogether. The fate of the Affordable Care Act is once again on the line. For a third time, the United States Supreme Court has agreed to hear a major challenge to Obamacare. The case won't be heard until next year, well after the next presidential term begins. 
The ACA is in real danger here, but Democrats hope to use this case as a reason for people to vote blue on November 3rd. Health care remains voters' number one concern. The case was brought by officials in Republican-led states. They claim that now that Congress has eliminated the tax penalty for not having health insurance, the whole Affordable Care Act is rendered unconstitutional. It was a Republican Congress that's bent on destroying Obamacare that stripped away that tax penalty in the first place, a penalty that was crucial to the success of the health care law. And it is the Trump administration that's siding with those Republican states as it, too, remains bent on wiping out Obamacare with no plan to replace it. Democrats asked for an emergency hearing by the Supreme Court to settle the matter now, but the court refused putting it instead on the docket for next year. The Affordable Care Act is still very much alive, but thanks to these circumstances, more vulnerable than ever. Still, the latest polling shows that a 55% majority of Americans support Obamacare and that opposition to it among Republican voters has greatly decreased. The Trumpublicans in this year's election oppose the Affordable Care Act. Among the remaining Democratic presidential candidates, only Biden wants to keep and improve Obamacare. Sanders and Warren want to do away with it and all private health insurance to be replaced by Medicare for All. What the Democratic candidates all share, however, is the belief that health care is a right, while Republicans continue to see it as the darkest aspects of socialism. The primary election season began with the Iowa caucuses in which Pete Buttigieg was the winner with a razor-thin victory over Bernie Sanders. Joe Biden came in fourth in Iowa. Then came New Hampshire, which ended in a virtual tie between Buttigieg and Sanders, but in that one, Sanders came out on top. There in New Hampshire, Biden couldn't even make the top four. But by the time the race got to Nevada, Buttigieg had fallen to third, and Sanders was the clear hands-down winner. Biden had risen to second place, but Sanders took home nearly three times as many delegates from Nevada as Biden. Then it was South Carolina's turn, and the presidential race took a turn as well. There, Biden was the clear winner, with well over twice the support of Bernie Sanders, thanks to Biden's strong support from black voters, helped by a crucial endorsement from Congressman Jim Clyburn. This week brought us Super Tuesday, the day the 2020 Democratic race for the nomination took a dramatic turn. Although Bernie Sanders had won California, it was mostly due to early voting since many same-day voters made up their minds at the last minute and most early voters denied themselves the opportunity to react to several remarkable last-minute events. The first, of course, was Biden's overwhelming victory in ethnically diverse South Carolina. The second was this. One by one, most of Biden's moderate rivals dropped out of the race. Billionaire Tom Steyer was the first to bail, followed by Pete Buttigieg and then Amy Klobuchar. And they didn't just drop out. Two of them, Buttigieg and Klobuchar, turned around and endorsed Joe Biden, and that made all the difference for a lot of last-minute voters. Klobuchar and Mayor Pete were joined in their endorsements of Biden by former Democratic rival Beto O'Rourke, who Biden promised to put in charge of gun law reform. But would it make a difference? Or would it be too little too late for moderates to overtake the momentum established by Bernie Sanders? Was three days enough time to turn things around? Biden hadn't raised the kind of money Sanders had raised, and his campaign has been lacking both the energy and expertise in the Sanders camp. The levels of anxiety and anticipation were intense, and it led to one of the most dramatic stories in American political history. 
armed with more endorsements and less competition and armed with moderate African-American and female support, Super Tuesday made Joe Biden the new Democratic frontrunner, at least for now. Biden won all seven states he was expected to win, Texas, North Carolina, Virginia, Tennessee, Alabama, Arkansas, and Oklahoma, and three states he was not expected to win, Maine, Minnesota, and Massachusetts, all three of which had been expected to go to Sanders. Biden had won 10 of the 14 states up for grabs, while Sanders won four, including Super Tuesday's biggest state, California, where hundreds of delegates are available. Elizabeth Warren won no states on Super Tuesday, not even her home state of Massachusetts or her state of birth, Oklahoma. So after a day of reflection, she bowed out of the race this morning. In some states on Tuesday, Warren was bested by billionaire Mike Bloomberg, who was reassessing his campaign plans after winning only in American Samoa and failing to hit the crucial 15% mark in the bigger Super Tuesday primaries. Joe Biden's fate had changed. He was now the frontrunner, now armed with the energy and expertise from the campaign staffs of Buttigieg, Klobuchar, and O'Rourke. It wasn't until yesterday morning that it was clear that Biden won the second biggest state in the Tuesday primaries, but Texas helped Biden complete his sweep of the South. And then another fairly remarkable thing happened. Yesterday morning, billionaire Mike Bloomberg dropped out of the race and threw his endorsement and his billions behind Joe Biden. Bloomberg had spent a half billion on his campaign and has pledged to spend more to help defeat Donald Trump. For Biden, the race had turned around in barely 72 hours. He hadn't just come from behind. He'd come from way behind. And there were no squeakers. Biden's victory over Sanders in some states were by wide margins. In his third run for president, Joe Biden had never won a single primary. In the past five days, he'd won more of them than any other candidate this year. After just that one day, Biden had accumulated one and a quarter million more votes than Bernie Sanders. And then there were three, including two very strong, very competitive candidates, Sanders with the support of liberal Democrats, Latinos, and youth, Biden with the support of moderate Democrats and black voters. With Elizabeth Warren out of the race, no longer competition for Sanders in the party's left wing, previously divided progressive voters could unify behind Bernie, just as the once-divided moderates had unified behind Biden. But the initial frontrunner suddenly had his work cut out, especially now that he's facing state primaries in which Sanders lost badly to Hillary in 2016. The caucuses in which Sanders performed so well are behind him now, only primaries going forward. It is now a two-man race. And that race is just getting started. This coming Tuesday, Democrats vote in six more states, Idaho, Mississippi, Missouri, North Dakota, Washington State, and the crucial swing state of Michigan. Except for a two-week break in mid-April and a quiet week in late May, the primary season continues right through the first week of June. But the battle between the two Democratic frontrunners may run all the way into the nominating convention in July. As with everything else in the news these days, no one can know how long or how difficult this new primary race might be. But last night, Bernie Sanders told Rachel Maddow that if Joe Biden gets a plurality of support going into the convention, he will support Joe Biden. Democracy may have been the biggest winner on Tuesday, 
Voter turnout was up, way up, by 20% in some places. In Virginia, voters turned out in numbers double that of 2016 and even more than they had in 2008 for Barack Obama. There was a record-breaking turnout in Utah for its first Super Tuesday primary. States that switched from caucuses to primaries saw huge turnouts. Democracy was alive. Exit polls, though, show that while older voters turned out in droves, voters between the ages of 18 and 29 made up only one-eighth of the people who voted Tuesday. Two-thirds were 45 years or older. The young people who had campaigned so fiercely online for Bernie Sanders and who had gathered at his rallies did not, for whatever reasons, turn out and vote. Despite his promise to inspire a surge in turnout to beat Donald Trump, Sanders was getting fewer votes this year than he did in 2016. The younger voters he was counting on were letting him down. In a dozen states where exit polls were conducted, most voters said finding a candidate who can beat Trump is more important than having one who agrees with them on the big issues. In overwhelming numbers, they said, that's Biden, and in some cases, by a two-to-one margin. The Sanders revolution wasn't going as planned. The Biden campaign, meanwhile, isn't going as Salon.com's Bob Seska had planned, but now he's okay with that. Bob? Thank you, Buzz. I've never been a Joe Biden super fan. Apart from the usual reasons some Biden critics cite, I've been particularly irritated by his support for the 2005 bankruptcy bill in which the then senator from Delaware, you know, the credit card state, supported George W. Bush's effort to make bankruptcies a lot more difficult for middle-class Americans. The law added a means test to the system that effectively made it impossible for many of us to file clean slate Chapter 7 bankruptcies. Thanks to this Biden and Bush legislation, if your income shows you're capable of repaying most of your debt, you're shuffled into a Chapter 13 where you have to repay all of that debt. This law was passed just a few years before the Great Recession when many of us could have really benefited from Chapter 7s. Convenient. My other criticism is more recent, though. Specifically, I've expressed my frustration with Biden's weak attacks on Donald Trump. As someone who, along with many of us, suffers from justifiable Trump derangement syndrome, I wish the words used to describe Trump's incompetence and criminality actually matched the degree of this presidential crisis, this national emergency. Mike Bloomberg, Amy Klobuchar, Bernie Sanders, and Elizabeth Warren have all repeated effective attacks on the president's character and record. Biden sounds like he's talking about any other quote-unquote normal Republican president, not this illegitimate bumbling jerk pretending to be president. Yes, according to Biden's own remarks, we know Trump's a quote-unquote congenital liar, at least those of us who know what congenital means, and we know he's quote-unquote fundamentally transforming the nation by disrupting norms and institutions. That's all a given. But what I don't hear from Biden are attacks that actually leave a mark, attacks that rise to the same level as the threat. However, since Saturday, the South Carolina primary, I've begun to rethink this criticism of Biden. It's become clear to me as Biden ascends to frontrunner status after an historic Super Tuesday that the former vice president's appeal and electability doesn't need to be propelled by scathing Bloomberg-style cuts against Trump and his henchmen. Biden doesn't have to own Trump, either during his stump speeches or in his TV ads. He doesn't need to do it because his very presence as a good man, quoting Jim Clyburn's endorsement remarks, 
is all he requires to create an effective contrast against Trump in the general election should Biden clinch the nomination over Bernie Sanders. Biden's public persona as a decent and respectable would-be president serves to underscore how unforgivably dangerous Donald Trump is, both as a man and as a leader. A pile of dog crap with a flag stuck in it will still look like a pile of dog crap with a flag stuck in it without someone pointing out that it's, you know, a pile of dog crap with a flag stuck in it. Furthermore, that pile of dog crap with a flag stuck in it will look even crappier if it's sitting next to, say, a fireman who's smiling and holding a litter of kittens. The fireman doesn't have to say a damn thing. The stink is obvious. That said, this is still politics, and this election remains a patriotic electoral battle for the very existence of America as a democratic republic in the face of a petty despot. You can't successfully win a shovel fight holding a litter of kittens. So in order to gain maximum benefit from Biden's good guy charm, he'll need a lot of surrogates who borrow from the playbook of Bloomberg and maybe even never Trump or Rick Wilson to nail the president to the wall. Turn the fire hose of news against Trump to keep his re-election campaign on its heels, responding to attacks rather than initiating them. Another benefit to Biden as a good guy to Trump's incompetent supervillain image is that it'll allow 2016 Trump voters who aren't quite part of the red hat cult to vote for the Democratic nominee, if it's Biden, while also saving face. If Biden isn't burning off Trump's flesh with scathing indictments of his presidency, leaving all that to surrogates, disaffected Trump voters can feel safe by casting their ballots for Biden, knowing he's not insulting their intelligence, irrespective of how badly it ought to be insulted. Conservative Trump fatigue sufferers, in addition to never-Trumpers, will turn out in greater numbers with Biden as the alternative. Such numbers might also counterbalance any Bernie or bust voters who stupidly vote for Trump or a third-party candidate, not unlike 2016. Biden could also cultivate a Reagan-inspired approach to his leadership style with some well-scripted self-deprecation, as well as some prepared barn burner speeches. Keep smiling, keep being humble, and give rally-goers something to feel really great about. Policy aside... That's what Reagan was able to achieve at an older age, in spite of the obvious signs of slowing down. Biden can be the Democratic Reagan. He just needs the right people to make it happen. Those of you who disagreed with me about Biden's tone against Trump were correct. I was wrong. With that in mind, I'm feeling more confident in Biden's ability to win, and that might very well include remaining above Trump's firehose of disinformation, conspiracy theories, and mudslinging. Good guy Joe Biden, surrounded by an invincible machine, could absolutely win this thing with more than 340 electoral votes. I'm Bob Seska for Buzz Burbank News and Comment. Thank you, Bob. Get more of Mr. Seska at Salon.com, his Patreon page, and Tuesdays and Thursdays on The Bob Seska Show at BobSeska.com. He'll have a fresh show this afternoon. I join Bob on his Tuesday shows. But her emails continued. A federal judge ruled Monday that the conservative group Judicial Watch can depose Hillary Clinton and others about her use of a private server for official government business. Never mind that Clinton's emails have already been investigated by Congress, the State Department's Inspector General, and the FBI, and that no wrongdoing was found. Never mind the use of unsecured apps for official White House communications by Trump's daughter, son-in-law, and five other White House officials. 
Sure, there are other priorities, coronavirus, an impeached president, and a contentious election campaign, but her emails. Meanwhile, in the Republican-controlled Senate, they've started an investigation into the Ukrainian natural gas company Burisma and the Bidens, Hunter and Joe. It is, after all, an election year, and Biden remains a formidable threat to the head of the Republican Party, Donald John Trump. Wisconsin's Ron Johnson, chairman of the Republican-led Senate Homeland Security and Government Affairs Committee, is ready to subpoena a witness, Andriy Telechenko, who was Burisma's representative here in the U.S. Joe Biden's son, Hunter, was on the board of Burisma while Joe led Obama's Ukraine policy. Trump and his Republicans have repeatedly claimed, without evidence, there was something fishy about that. To date, no evidence of wrongdoing has been found. Senator Johnson of Wisconsin requested the subpoena of Telechenko the day after Joe Biden solidly won the South Carolina primary. Besides Wisconsin's Johnson, Iowa's Chuck Grassley and South Carolina's Lindsey Graham have each also launched investigations into Hunter Biden. It is, after all, an election year, and Biden remains a formidable threat to the head of the Republican Party, Donald John Trump. Senate Republicans believe that having Telechenko testify would help Russia spread disinformation, since Telechenko has embraced the disproven claim that Ukraine helped Hillary Clinton and the DNC in 2016 and would now spread this disproven conspiracy theory into the congressional record and into the public. Also worth noting, Telechenko met last year about his crazy theories with Trump's personal lawyer, Rudy Giuliani. Just as a reminder to you and myself, none of this is normal. Stop touching your face. Chris Matthews walks away and danger at a Chuck E. Cheese in the final segment after this. A commercial-free newscast means there are no sponsors here, no corporations overseeing things. But there are a variety of expenses related to the production of these programs. So this newscast is free to you, but it's not free to make. If you'd like to help in this effort, please click on the PayPal Donate button in the upper right at buzzburbank.com or on your phone, it's just below the title, Buzz Burbank News and Comment. Some very kind listeners schedule a monthly payment. And there's still a little Amazon button on my page. If you're shopping Amazon anyway, clicking through my website and bookmarking that Amazon page still helps. You may need to turn off your pop-up blocker to see all the useful links on my page, but it is both safe and helpful to do so. Whatever you do, whatever you've done, however you do it, thank you. True or false, increased carbon dioxide is good for the Earth's atmosphere. Well, that's false, but that claim has now been inserted into the findings of government scientists reporting on climate change. False and misleading claims, plural, in at least nine reports, according to the New York Times, including environmental studies and watershed impact statements that are crucial to American farmers, wildlife, and fisheries. Indur Gaklani, or Gok as he's known, has worked for the Interior Department for years, but got promoted in the early days of the Trump administration. Gaklani was tasked with reviewing the department's climate policies, which guide important decisions about mineral and water rights that affect millions of citizens and hundreds of millions of acres. Gok believes the scientists in his department are, quote, overestimating the rate of global warming for whatever reason, end quote. Within the Department of the Interior, 
Gok has pushed his false belief that there is no consensus among climate scientists about climate change. In truth, there is consensus, nearly unanimous consensus. And Inder Gaklani likes to focus on what he sees are the upsides to climate change, a longer growing season, and his claim that unwatered plants make more efficient crops. He takes out scientific language that shows crop yields will get smaller around the world. Indor Gaklani rose with the Trump administration, and if it goes, so will he. But a Trump administration plan to hand out a million acres of oil and gas leases on federal lands has been struck down by a federal judge in Idaho. The judge says the Trump Interior Department was wrong to limit public input on those fossil fuel leases. Environmentalists challenged the administration on this as they try to protect an at-risk bird species, the greater sage-grouse. Only a half million of those birds remain where there were once 16 million of them. The sagebrush they need to survive is being plowed away to make way for drilling. If you googled an image for the sage-grouse, you would find it interesting and sort of cute and not something you'd want to see go extinct at the hands of humans. Last year, the Trump administration opened up 9 million acres of federal lands for drilling, lands that had been protected to help save the greater sage-grouse. The Trump administration has bragged that over a million barrels of oil were extracted from public lands and from offshore wells last year. A lawyer for the environmentalists says the Trump administration, quote, treat the public like an inconvenience that might get in the way of them passing out special interest favors to their friends in industry. It shows what they really think about the public, he says, adding, it's also illegal. One energy company spokesman calls it instead a minor question of process. Everyone touches their face, and it needs to stop. A family medicine professor at Oregon Health and Science University has studied face touching and tells the New York Times she knows it's a hard habit to break. We each touch our eyes and or nose and or mouth nearly a dozen times an hour. Quoting Dr. Mary Louise McLaws, the community needs to be aware of how often they're touching their face. The first step, of course, is awareness. Use a tissue to wipe your eyes, nose, or mouth, and or wash your hands first and throw that tissue away after just one use. We should also be hand washing frequently anyway. Dr. McLaws says that if we could just stop touching our face holes, we could end the spread of all kinds of diseases, including colds and flu. And she reminds us our hands are only as clean as the last thing we touched. As COVID-19 spreads, this year's seasonal influenza outbreak is fading. There were an estimated 3 million new cases in the most recent weekly report, but the percentage of flu tests coming back positive was down by nearly 3.5%. The number of flu-related doctor visits has also dropped by 1.5%. A new report on the flu comes out tomorrow. Judging only from the records, 32 million Americans have been down with the flu this year. Nearly a third of a million went to hospitals. 18,000 people have died from the flu just this year in the U.S., including 125 children. This year's vaccine has been 45% effective in preventing the flu and has reduced symptoms and duration in millions of other people. Still, only 43% of us are getting the shot, and that's one of the reasons the flu is so widely spread to others. Line up 10 American adults, and on average, four of them are obese. One of them is severely obese. This according to survey findings by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. 
this is the prevention part. The CDC found in its annual survey of 5,000 adults that obesity is on the rise up 2% from the year before. Severe obesity is up from 8% to 9 The latest upticks are within the survey's margin of error, so they may not be solid upticks, but they do appear to represent a trend. Obesity is now 10 times more common than it was 50 years ago. Obesity has increased by 40% in the last 20 years. Obesity leads to diabetes, heart disease, and cancer. And as the number of patients rises, doctors will be hard-pressed to keep up with their patients' failing health. Quoting one expert, severe obesity really requires very intensive therapy. The CDC report on obesity in minors comes out later this year. In its last report, it put the rate for children and teens at nearly 19%. We lost a food icon this week in the passing of Trader Joe. Joe Coulomb targeted younger shoppers he believed would buy quality, healthy food if they could get it at affordable prices. He opened the first Trader Joe's in Pasadena in, wait for it, 1967. Joe had gotten himself a Fulbright scholarship and spent a couple of years in Europe where he learned that Velveeta is not cheese and that Folgers isn't the only coffee. It seems fitting that on Saturday when his death was announced that the hashtag RIP Trader Joe was trending on Twitter. You may have seen Jack Welch on the business news or in a cameo on NBC's 30 Rock, but he was, for better or worse, a business superstar. It was on the Welch watch and during the Reagan years that GE, once the parent company of NBC, saw its profits rise by nearly fivefold. Fortune magazine named him the manager of the century for that achievement, and the Financial Times named his General Electric the world's most respected company for three straight years. Jack Welch died Sunday at his Manhattan home from kidney failure at age 84. Today, NBC is owned by Comcast, which also owns Universal Studios and more. The host of Bravo's Inside the Actors Studio has died. James Lipton was 93. He also died in his Manhattan home from bladder cancer. Lipton knew showbiz and interviewed the stars. He got comments from them that no one else could by avoiding the gossip and asking questions that were different. The show began in 1992, and he interviewed all the greats, from Paul Newman to John Goodman and everyone in between. James Lipton was prepared for his interviews, spending weeks poring over the research others prepared for him. His questions were sometimes so good, Sally Field asked if he'd been reading her diary. Julia Roberts asked if he'd been speaking to her mother. In the 1940s, he was a young actor on the radio drama The Lone Ranger. In the 50s, he was a beat poet. In the 60s, he was the surgeon with the golden hands on the TV soap opera The Guiding Light. He wrote scripts for that show as well, along with the daytime soaps Another World and The Edge of Night. Lipton was also pompous and a celebrity suck-up, to the point that he was endlessly skewered by Will Ferrell on Saturday Night Live, targeted by Sasha Baron Cohen's Ali G, and cartoon murdered in an episode of The Simpsons. Now James Lipton is, in fact, dead, after a remarkable life and career. Chris Matthews is still with us, just not on television anymore. Matthews retired on the air Monday evening at the top of his MSNBC show Hardball after a week of gaffes and accusations of sexual harassment. After 20 years with NBC, the 74-year-old made a two-minute sign-off statement in which he apologized for his remarks to and about women and said it was time for a younger generation to take the reins in both politics and broadcasting. 
Matthews had already apologized last week for comparing the Bernie Sanders victory in Nevada to the Nazi invasion of France. The show went to commercials after his farewell, and when it returned, Steve Kornacki was in the host chair saying, that was a lot to take in. In a statement at the end of the show, Kornacki fought back tears and paid tribute to someone he said had inspired, educated, and entertained him. The first clue Matthews was out came Saturday evening when he was not part of the MSNBC panel covering the South Carolina primary, as he normally would be. Matthews had gotten a call that morning from the head of the cable network informing him it was time to go. Chris Matthews had lost step with the Times and stepped away. Judge Judy is also not going away, but her show as we've known it is. Judith Scheinland says she is ending her current show after 25 years. It is the longest career of any TV judge, and she is TV's highest paid host, hands down, at $47 million a year, plus the $100 million she just got for selling her library of shows. New episodes will continue through the summer. The reruns will be around, and Scheinland says that next year she'll launch her new show, Judy Justice. Invisible Man with Elizabeth Moss is the top movie in theaters this week with a $29 million haul. The Sonic the Hedgehog movie is in second with a two-week take of $100 million. For the rest of the movies, plus previews, theaters, showtimes, and tickets, please click vigorously on the Fandango link at buzzburbank.com. How many air guitar players does it take to set a world record? The answer on Sunday came from Down Under, where 3,722 people played air guitar to the ACDC classic Highway to Hell. It was one of several tributes around the world that day to commemorate the 40th anniversary of the death of ACDC founding member Bon Scott. The air guitarists were conducted by Australia's air guitar champ, Alex Roberts, also known as Ginger Assassin. Animal Stories In Oregon, police responded to the report of a goat on the loose in a group home. The goat had followed someone into the home, whereupon it started headbutting the residents, who then barricaded themselves in their rooms. A police officer was able to get a leash on the goat and walk it to a nearby farm, which agreed to keep it until the goat's owner could be found. Prior to this, the goat had reportedly been behaving in, quote, a threatening manner. As billy goats go, it was gruff. And don't you just hate it when a snake swallows your beach towel? In Australia, an animal hospital labored to remove an entire beach towel from the belly of a family's 18-year-old pet snake, a python named Monty. The family, the snake, and the beach towel are reportedly all okay. In Tennessee, they spotted a bald eagle that appeared to be injured. Wildlife officers were called in to rescue the poor thing. Its leg band revealed the bald eagle to be 24 years old. When they got close to it, they discovered the bird wasn't injured at all. He'd just finished a big meal and was, quoting the wildlife officers, too full to fly. You know the feeling. From our That Old Trick department in Tavares, Florida, the police department is offering to test street drugs for people worried they might be contaminated with coronavirus. No takers so far. If there are any, you'll hear it here. Are people really that gullible? You be the judge. In Detroit, Garth Brooks took nationwide flack online for wearing a Sanders jersey during a concert. 
How dare he, said Trump supporters, offended that a country music star of all people would be backing Bernie Sanders. It was, of course, a jersey from the NFL's Barry Sanders. No word on how many of the upset fans are registered to vote. Americans are the kind of people who will gather at a shutdown Taco Bell for a candlelight vigil, as they did at the bell that was near Penn State University. The leader of the vigil told the morning crowd, Taco Bell was our home away from home and added spice to our life. He said this while wearing a giant taco costume. All is not lost. The next nearest bell is just two miles away. In Portlandia, a woman is suing a Chuck E. Cheese restaurant for a thousand bucks, accusing the kids' pizza den of being negligent. According to her Portland, Oregon lawsuit, Ashriana Scott was feeding paper tickets into a machine to claim a prize when it caught her long hair and pulled her hair until the machine jammed where it kept her trapped for 20 minutes. In her lawsuit, Ashriana says Mr. Cheese should have put up a sign warning of the danger to long hair. She says she filed the lawsuit after the chain's insurance company refused to settle. And finally... We part ways today with a story from the 110 in Los Angeles, but that's where the story ended. It began last Wednesday night when a black Lincoln Navigator was stolen right in front of St. Anthony's Greek Orthodox Church in East Pasadena. The LAPD used Facebook to plead with the thief, whoever it was, to return the Navigator because what was inside. Of all the bad decisions you've made, the cops wrote to the still anonymous thief, at least make one good one. The vehicle belonged to a funeral home and was being used as a hearse. While one body was being delivered inside the church, another was in the Lincoln Navigator and remained there through the theft and the high-speed chase that ensued and ended on the 110. The hearse chase ended with a crash in which the front end of the Navigator was smashed. The driver, now in jail, and the casket were okay. The body inside the casket remained dead. I'm Buzz Burbank. Thanks for listening and your support through the donate button at buzzburbank.com. I'll be back next Thursday with another Buzz Burbank news and comment. The preceding presentation was brought to you by the Realm Network.